people for generations. I was really shocked to find that just a couple of generations back, there were Irish roots. You know, and all of a sudden, it starts to kind of change your opinion of who you are and realize that people came from Ireland in the potato famine in the 80, 1840s and settled, settled in Wolverhampton, I know, but settled in the, in the, in the north and, and that kind of thing. And that was quite interesting. And one of the things that really surprised me, and the trouble with the ancestry stuff is you never quite know if it's right. You kind of, you, you're taking educated guesses to some degree, was to realize that my mother's great-grandmother actually lived in Wolverhampton for a time, a hundred years before any of the rest of our family went there, and then she moved on up to Blackburn. And I thought, wow, of all the places that she could have lived and all the places that my parents went to, that's, that's kind of amazing. She went and lived in the Irish Quarter, which was big in, in Wolverhampton. And another interesting thing um, that's kind of quite relevant in this, this, um, this year of, you know, the, the 2016, the Somme celebrations, and not, or not celebrations, you know, the... Uh, I don't know what they call them, but, you know, they talked about the psalm and the hundred years since the psalm, was that my grandfather and my grandfather's brother were both in the RAMC, the medical corps in the war, um, and they were on the, the hospital trains and, and, you know, carrying people to dressing stations and that kind of thing. But my grandfather's brother, George James Bostock, uh, was actually on a hospital ship called the Britannic, which was a sister ship to the Titanic, uh, it was a bigger ship than the Titanic, um, but unfortunately, the Britannic, in November, it was November 16th, 2016, so almost 100 years ago, was, was coming back with some um, uh, wounded soldiers, I think from Gallipoli, I'm not sure, um, and it hit a, a mine in the, near a Greek island and was sunk, and it sunk quicker than the Titanic. These unsinkable ships, the Olympic class, which was supposed to be unsinkable, it went down quicker then the Titanic went down. It just, just sank without trace. And out of all the people that were on there, I think there were over 1,000 people on there, only 30 people died. And one of those people was my grandfather's brother. And how, this is not very nice, actually. How they died was that they lowered the lifeboats too early. And because the ship was going up, two of the lifeboats swung into the propellers and got basically hammered to bits. And then my great-grandfather, you know. And it, it's, it's a family tragedy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's interesting. I'm quite interested in that kind of thing. And I, what I like to know is I like to know what were these people like? How did they live? You know, I'd love to go back in a time machine and just meet these people and see how they lived in the industrial north or, or in Nottingham where my, my father came from. But then the practical side of me kicks in and I think, well, I'd probably catch all kinds of diseases because I wouldn't, you know, I'd be subject and I wouldn't like the food and that kind of thing. So I'm a bit too practical for some of these dreams these days. So anyway, put, put it aside. But, but, it, but it's quite interesting. Um, and for those of you interested, I know Cheryl likes history and family history, but for me that's quite interesting. And, and there's other things as well. Um, one of the things is that I realised that my, one of the boss docks down the line in the middle of the um, 1800s may actually not have been fathered by a Bostock. And so that brought into question the whole Bostock. Am I a Bostock? You know? <laughs> what was, you know, it's true. You know, it kind of makes you start to think, you know. It, but, of course, obviously he was kind of adopted into the line and became a Bostock. But it just starts to challenge who you think you are and, you know, where you think you've come from and all those kind of things. But the good thing as a Christian is I've got a much more secure heritage. And it's a bit of a cheesy link, I know. I'm sorry to do a cheesy link on you uh, on a nice Sunday morning. But someone once said to me, when I was telling them about this ancestry stuff, you know, they, they kind of poured scorn on it a bit and said, oh, why don't you look at your ancestors in the Bible? 
I thought, bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> you know, what a kind of religious thing to say. <laughs> you know. But that's what I'm going to do this morning. So, you know. <laughs> hey, you know. So I want to look at one of our ancestors. No matter where you come from, South Africa or India or um, Africa or wherever, we all have common ancestors in the faith. And I want to look at one of our ancestors in the faith this morning. In Isaiah um, 51 and 1 to 2, it says, Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness. I'm pres- presuming that we're all pursuing righteousness. We are righteous, but we want to pursue his righteousness, his kingdom and his righteousness. So listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, but I blessed him and made him many. So the injunction is to look to the rock from which we were in the sense of that there's a rock there which is Abraham and because we've come into the faith there's something of that there's something of him that is the same about us and that we can be like so as we look at him we're not just looking at an ancestor and saying gosh he lived 4,000 years ago or however long it was I wonder what he was like was he big or tall didn't really matter but he was a man who had attributes and uh, elements of faith that we too can have and what I want to do is just look at some general things about him, just to just rehearse some of his history. I think it will be uh, common knowledge to you. But then I want to look at something specific, which took me a little bit by surprise, and I want to talk about that at the end. But um, let's, let's start... Excuse me, I'm feeling very dry. Let me start in Hebrews 11, because Hebrews is always, 11 is always a good place to start in some of these heroes of the faith, because it talks... A little bit about Abraham. Because once you start looking at Abraham, you realise, you know, I couldn't go through every verse on Abraham this morning. We'll be here till tea time and beyond. Um, so I'm not going to do that. You'll be pleased to know. Partly because we've got to get up the road to Harrogate soon. But um, um, I just want to pick out bits and bobs and then your homework is to go back and, you know, have a little look more and, and get to know more about this man of faith, this hero of the faith, this father of the faith that... that um, that, that is, is so special and that we can be like. So Hebrews 11, I put my bookmark in and then I forgot the hand. So um, I'm going to start reading in verse 8. By faith, and we'll find that Abraham is a big faith man, isn't he? We, we, we know that really. If, if someone said to you, what is it about Abraham? We would say, it's faith. It's faith and it's righteousness by faith, isn't it? It's the gospel, really. There we By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. It's a bit scary. You all like to know where we're going. That's why satnavs are so good, isn't it? You know, you kind of don't know where you're going, but at least a little satnav does. That's the way it goes, doesn't it? Um, By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward 
to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Excuse me. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old. Now, some of your translations probably say Sarah received power. There's a kind of a bit of a discrepancy. The New Revised Standard Version says Abraham, but I know the English Standard Version, which I prepared in, and a lot of the others say Sarah. So, uh, And Sarah herself was, sorry, by faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So this is the beginning story of Abraham, isn't it? You know, he went out. I mean, and it's interesting to me, as we look at the story, as you go into Genesis, to see that it wasn't him initially that went out. It was, he went with his family. His father initially wanted to go out into the land of Canaan, and they went, but they, they got stuck because one of his brothers had died, and they got stuck. And then God came to Abraham and said, follow me, and that's when he went out and went to a land that he didn't know where he was going. And that's where his walk with God began and, and continued. And one of the things about Abraham, as we look through it, is we get the feel that he was a real perfect guy. Father of the faith, he never did anything wrong, he was always perfect. But actually, that's anything but the case. Because when you look at Abraham, he made some big old mistakes. But God still used him, and God still perpetuated his purpose through him. And I think that can be encouraging to us, because none of us are perfect, are we? Olive isn't, but the rest of you are. Sorry, I kind of, I, I'm kind of in the wrong church, really. I'm kind of, I didn't realize that was among perfection. But none of us are perfect, are we? And we all do things wrong. We make mistakes. We think we've blown it. We think, how can God still want to use me for what I've done, what I've been? I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I should have done this. I should have done that. How can God still want to use me? But Abraham, if you look into the life of Abraham, um, twice he, when he was in the land, he, uh, because there was a famine, through fear, went down to Egypt. And he said, because he was scared, he said to his wife, you pretend that you're my sister. Um, you pretend that you're my sister, and then they, they, won't, they won't kill me, and all that kind of thing. You know, so he's stopped trusting in God. He's trusting in his own deviousness. And so Abimelech, the, 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 the ruler of Egypt, takes his... Uh, wife and is almost sleeping with her until God intervenes and the whole nation's nearly under curse because of one man uh, foolishness and, and fear. Um, so that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big failure, isn't it? I'm not sure that anybody's done it, something that's caused the whole nation to be under a curse, have they? Maybe they have, I don't know. But but no, but he doesn't just do it once, he does it twice. You know, I don't know. Sometimes once is stupid, twice is playing whatever, isn't it? You know, because he does it again the second time. Um, and then, you know, he, he has this promise all the time as God's speaking to him and giving him the promise and saying, look at the stars, count them, you can't count them, that's how many your descendants are going to be. Look at the sand on the seashore, you can't count it, that's how many your descendants are going to be. I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. Yeah? So Abraham decides he's going to give God a little hand, or his wife decides she's going to give him a hand, because neither of them, both of them are past childbearing, you know, and they're, they're not able to. So again... They try and come up with a scheme. So Sarah said to him, 
why don't you sleep with my maidservant and we'll get a son and this son will be the, the, uh, the they don't get a son, but they do, they do get a son. And so it's another kind of scheme. It's another way that he's trying to make things happen um, for God and that God doesn't want because God's got a plan. He's going to bring uh, the blessing on both of them. God's going to bring a child to both of them um, that will bless the world. Okay, that will, they'll have inheritance that will bless the world, but they try and do it their own way. And there's a, a, sad little, a sad little end of chapter, beginning of chapter, and I'm not sure which chapter it is. Someone will find it out. And my old pastor back in Norwich used to like to point this out, that when Ishmael is born, this is, this is the, the guy that's born to this, this wrong union, that the close of the chapter, the start of the next chapter, there's 13 years go by. 13 years where I don't think it's God gets the hump with him and doesn't talk to him, you know, turns his back, and I'm not going to talk to you for a bit. But no, there's a kind of sense that he's got to work out his foolishness, and he's got to kind of realise that what he's done isn't the way that God wanted to do it. God wanted to do it through um, Abraham, it was, and Sarah, which he changed their names. He wanted to do it through them. And all their scheming wasn't going to bring it about, but he didn't write them off. He didn't say, right, you've blown it. This is the third time. This is the third thing you've done wrong. I'm going to write you off. No, he said, no, it's through you that the promise is going to come. It's through you. Because Abraham had believed him, and it had been credited to him as righteousness. That's what the scripture says. But God was going to do it that way, through him. And he had to realize that these other things he was getting involved with, God wanted to work those through and, 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 and get back to the plan, which was through Sarah and Abraham. He was going to have a, um, a son, and this son was going to bring offspring, and the offspring were going to bless the world. And we are part of that offspring, aren't we? We are, through faith in him. Yeah, that's good. Okay. That was a, perhaps a little bit waffly. So, um, let me just have a look at Romans 4, because this, this Romans 4 is, it talks about this as well. Um, there's some bits in there. I'm just trying to give you a bit of a background on, on Abraham before I, I spring into what I want to really say. I'm assuming you kind of know the story and you know all the bits and bobs so, as I touch on things. But this will give us a bit more background information and, and more of the, the history of them. This is uh, Romans 4 verse 1. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something as something due, sorry. But to one who without works trusts him or justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So this is the big thing about Abraham, isn't it? He believed God when God said that he would uh, bless him, he would, he would have an inheritance that would bless the world. He believed God and God credited him as righteousness. And then in verse uh, 13, he talks on about this. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is to the adherents of the law, excuse me, sorry, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it depends on faith, 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, um, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And this is great. This is, what he, this is what he believed. This is what he came to believe when he was trusting God. He came to believe. Um, who, he believed in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the God who Abraham believed in. And that's the God that we can believe in because it's the same God. It's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said. So numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old. I mean, 56 years old, and I feel as good as dead sometimes. <laughs> so he must have felt really as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. So we see there's a promise through Abraham that he believed that his descendants would bless the earth. And because he believed it, and he believed that it says in a God who would uh, bring life, let me just read it because it's, it's important, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Because he could see that himself was dead and his wife was dead. And after all his machinations, he came to a place where he believed God, that God would do what he said he would do through him and his wife and would bring about this seed. So that's what I was going to talk on about Abraham. I was going to talk on faith. Um, I was going to perhaps talk on the feeding of the 5,000 and, and how we need to believe God and believe what he said. But when I started to look at Abraham, I came across a verse in Isaiah, which, which you know, sometimes you read a verse and it really kind of, it kind of goes, you know, and it, it doesn't kind of like that, but it sort of, it really kind of stills you and it makes you think, yeah, this is, this is important. And it was Isaiah 41.8. And it was only really a passing comment, I think, in Isaiah. But it, it just stopped me, made me think. And it made me think, this is what I want for my life. This is what I want. Okay? And it's verse 8. It says, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. I thought, that's what I want for my life. I want to be a friend of God. I want to be a friend of God. I want that on my tombstone. Unless we've been raptured or whatever is going to happen. Roger, the friend of God. Yeah? And it really kind of, I thought, yeah. I was surprised because I didn't think Abraham was the friend of God. I thought that was Moses, and I said to Olive about Abraham the friend, and she said, oh, that's Moses. Not that she spoke like that. <laughs> Not that she spoke like that. <laughs> that's, my, that's just me trying to get a laugh. Um, 
Because, yeah, you think of Moses as a friend of God. But no, Abraham, my friend. And actually, Abraham's talked of as a friend more than Moses. It's just mentioned about Moses. But it's talked about Abraham. It talks about him in the New Testament as well. So I thought, let me have a look at um, this thing about the friend of God. Because, as I said, he didn't always get it right. So being a friend of God is not about getting everything absolutely correctly right. It's not about having an eye ducks in a row and everything right and in order. There's something more to it than that. And so, in thinking about it, I came across a verse in James. My little question for the day, actually, because um, I was thinking about this. I used to uh, win a lot of wine gums when I was, a, I was in a choir. And sort of 11, 12, 13, I think I probably was. We used to get one wine gum for one question right in a sermon, two for two right. And I used to have loads of wine gums. My life is horrendous, mine, but I could win wine gums <laughs> for Bible knowledge. But somebody said of James, I think they said either it's a gospel of straw or it's a book of straw. Who said about James that it was a gospel of straw or it was a book of straw? Because they didn't like it. That's a clue. They didn't like it. It didn't go along with their theology. Mark Baines, I thought you would know. <laughs> okay. So Martin Luther said it. <laughs> two wine gums. No, because he gets no wine gums, so it'd be too much of a smart aleck. No, very good, Mark. Martin Luther didn't like James because it went, it seemed to contradict his whole, um, you know, justification by grace, which is how we are saved, isn't it? So, James, and I haven't even found it myself yet, sorry. James 2, verse 20. And this is, um, it's in a discussion. James is kind of, well, James is not in a discussion. James is in a, almost a rant, I think about how you can't say you've got faith if you don't have any works to show it. Um, and that's true. Faith in itself is not worth much. We get saved through faith by grace or whichever way around that is, sorry. Um, but once we've got saved, and it's a free gift, Ephesians 2.8, isn't it? We then need to Show, show that faith or we need to act on that faith. We need to act it out. It needs to make a difference in our lives. There needs to be things coming from that faith. Don't they? Otherwise, it's not faith. If it doesn't lead to action, it's not really faith. It's just maybe mental assent, which is not faith, is it? But faith, there's true faith. It gets you saved through grace, but then it causes you to do something. Um, it says in Ephesians that we're saved for good works. And I think it's one of the, I was, trying to, I was thinking on the way as we were walking in, one of the, one of the uh, pastoral epistles is full of good works. I think it might be Titus, actually. It's full of, every chapter is saying about good works. So this is what James is saying. He's saying that you show me your faith, and I'll show you I've got faith by what I do, because I'm going to do things that demonstrate my faith. Okay? Because it seems to contradict some of the things we've read back in Romans, but it doesn't contradict it just kind of is saying something different. So 20, it says, Do you want to be shown, you senseless person? He's not talking to anyone here, of course. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. It's interesting that it's there, isn't it? Actually, it's not in every manuscript, but it is in quite a few of the translations. So I presume it's, you know, it's, it, there's a good reason it's there. So it's saying, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, in his believing, it's reckoned to him as righteousness. He gets his righteousness from believing. But somehow, that faith was fulfilled. It was kind of, it was, um, it's the word is teleos. It was completed. It was completed through what he did. Okay? And what he did was almost offer his son on the altar. I presume you know that story. You know, towards the end when Isaac's been born and the promise... God's promises through Isaac. It's specifically through Isaac. You know, it's not uh, your descendants, it's your descendants through Isaac. I'm going to bless the world. God said to him, <laughs> it's quite funny how they talk in, in Genesis. Abraham, and he says, here I am. You'd have thought, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You know, it's a bit like he's in the house somewhere, don't quite know where he is. But anyway, Abraham, here I am. I want you to take the son that you love and I want you to offer him up on the Mount of Moriah. Um, and Abraham just gets on with it. And there's something about what he did there that um, fulfilled his faith, that kind of completed his faith. Um, and if we just look at the story briefly, he, he goes off with Isaac to, the, to Mount Moriah, which is three, um, three days march or three days walk it must have been a bit of a drudge for him because he's thinking i'm gonna to have to put this son of mine to death he's you know he's been wanting him for a long time he's, he, he loves him he's going to put him to death and he gets to a place where he said to the servants you stay there with the donkeys and me and my son will go over there and worship and then we will come back he says then we will come back i was just thinking as an offshoot actually it's quite interesting isn't it that's quite a worship service that he's going to have there you know, we have trouble getting people here on 10.30 to sing. You know, if it was sacrificing your son, I don't think anyone would turn up. We'd be the worst attended church in Cambridge, wouldn't we? Because we're not going to that church. You have to take your son. But obviously that's not what it was about. We're saying, I'm, take, I'm going there to worship. There's something more to worship than just singing. I'm, they weren't just going to stand there and sing or just going to say a few prayers. There was a, the, he felt he was going to have to sacrifice his son. But he also knew that God was going to complete his word. And this is where his faith was perfected because he believed God that the promise would come about whether he killed him or not because he believed that God was going to do it. God would maybe have to bring him back from the dead. And then in the, as, if we go in the story, um, Isaac pipes up and said to him, uh, Daddy, where's, where's the lamb that we're going to kill? And Abraham, a classic, you know, just, just the gospel. God will provide for himself a lamb. God will provide for himself a lamb, which of course he did, both in that story and, you know, 2,000 years down the road at Calvary, God provided a lamb so that all of us, by faith, could be saved. Fantastic. And that story is a fantastic um, picture, a type of, 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 what, of what God did um, by sending his son to die on the cross. But as I say, offering his son, or, or going to offer his son, you know, he's almost got the knife. He's going to kind of, the knife's almost there, and he's going to kind of, he must have been thinking, 
you know, if there was any time that God was going to say, don't do it, it's too late. And God calls to him and says, um, Abraham, don't. And in the thicket, there's a, there's a ram or a lamb. And that's what's sacrificed. But there's something about that sacrifice that, that completed his faith, that showed that his faith in God was more than just a, um, you know, a fair-weather faith. It was a real trust. And if we go back to Ephesians 11, it does talk about this, just so you know, um, uh, I'm not making it up. 17, 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promise promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So his faith was in that God would do it. God had said that he was going to do it. He believed him. It was credited to him as righteousness. But even though now God was saying he had to kill his son, he still believed that somehow, however it was, whether his son would come back from the dead, he would do it. But obviously he was spared putting him to death. And the rest is history because Isaac and then Jacob and then, you know, the, the, the Jews... Sorry, did I get that one? I said Ephesians. Hebrews, sorry. I just tested and see if you're awake, he said, <laughs> lying through his teeth. So, um, excuse me. So, yeah, so if you think about Isaac, when he's thinking about, firstly, he's his, he's his most loved son that he's waited ages for. But not just was it his son, it was the whole promise. You know, it's almost like 45 years of his life have been spent working towards this promise, uh, believing for the promise, getting it wrong, getting it right, um, believing God, seeing it happen, finally getting the son, the son grows up, and now God's saying this. You know, it was, there was a lot that he was going to sacrifice, as it were. But it so pleased God. This so pleased God, this, this, this faith. It's the faith so pleased God that God was calling his friend. And I've been thinking, well, what can we learn? Because I'm sure, you know, there's no call for us to go home and deal with our family in the same, in the same way. We're on the different side of the covenant now. It's not the same. And, you know, I think religion or, or externalism loves sacrifice. It loves to kind of, you know... I can find it myself, you know, almost like if something's good, oh, that can't be right. I'm a Christian. I must be needing to chop this out of my life. There's a, there's a sense that religion kind of comes against and makes sacrifice the, the be-all and end-all. And I don't think sacrifice is the be-all and end-all. I think the trust is what's important here. The trust, it's trusting, it's trusting God that that's what God was pleased with and the fact that he was prepared to sacrifice his son, but not the sacrifice in itself, if you can uh, get the... Um, Get the, get the point. Um, and I want to just emphasize that I'm not talking about salvation. This isn't talking about salvation. This is not talking about faith, faith for salvation because our salvation is secure. And over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've heard about, um, from Neil, Neil talked about the, the Father, God as Father and as going into him in prayer. And last week, Bob talked about um, the presence of God and about... Um, uh, Eileen quoted that thing from uh, 
Lisa Bevere about how God loves us uniquely. That's all, that's all there for us. We've, we've received all that. We've received the love of God. God loves us like that. He loves us uniquely. We have salvation and we are sons. All that's, all that's settled. But friendship with God is kind of like more of a, it's not a one-off event, is it? It's kind of like we, we learn friendship. We, in, it's, friendship's intimacy, isn't it? It's kind of like if I have a friend, um, you know, if I get to know, say, um, Mark, day one, I'm not a buddy-buddy friend. It takes a while to become buddy-buddy friends. It takes a while to become intimate. You can't just get that. And so that's why I believe that what I'm talking about today is more of a, a step-by-step thing of coming into a friendship with God, not just something that's given to us straight away, like, like God as Father. You see what I'm trying to say? The Father of God is given when we become a Christian. He becomes our Father, and that's it. He's our Father. It will never change. He loves us uniquely. That will never change, whatever we do. But friendship with God is something that we need to walk in and learn and grow in. And that's what he wants for us. And that's what I want to walk in for myself. And it takes time to become a friend, doesn't it? It takes time. It takes time spending time with a person and getting to know them, getting to know what they like, getting, and they get to know what you like and all that kind of thing. You know, I've spent a bit of time with Neil. I know he doesn't really like pink shirts and pink phones. <laughs> I'm teasing him a little bit. But, you know, um, yeah, it takes time to get to know somebody. But it takes more than time, I believe. And this is what I just want to challenge us on. Because, I'm, oh, there we go, I lost that bit. I haven't used any red words yet, because Mark says red words always win. And I just want to go and, and look at what Jesus says about all this. Um, friendship with God. In John 15. Because I think this is how it applies to us. This is how this thing about being a friend of God applies to us. And it's in the great thing on this... In 15, when he's talking about the vine and the branches. Just looking for where I'm at. Yeah, verse 7. I'm going to jump in in verse 7. It's kind of, it's kind of a oneness, really. Again, it's something worth reading when you, you get home. But it's, Jesus is saying, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's fantastic in itself, isn't it? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. We feel so unloved at times, but Jesus loves us the same way the Father loved him. That's fantastic. But abide in my love. And how do we abide in his love? He tells us, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you, sorry, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So we need to keep his commandment to abide in his love. And then he goes on to tell us what that means. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. 
but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So Jesus, it's kind of, it's moved the goalposts. No longer do we have to sacrifice sons on mountains. That's quite a good thing, isn't it? Um, my son's quite big. I'd be struggling to tie him down. But it's about loving. It's about abiding in Jesus' love and loving one another. And he, will, he said, I call you friends, but there's a sense that, you know, we're all called friends, but there's a sense that as we walk in this and love one another, we become more, more so, if I can say it that way. One of the things that struck me is that it's, it's very difficult, actually, to love one another, isn't it? It's, it's, well, it's impossible. Have you noticed that? If you're young, perhaps it's not that difficult. But, you know, it's very difficult to love one another. You can love one or two people, but it's difficult to love all the people that God puts in front of you. We need God's help. And there's a sense that we need to go to him. God, help me. Help me love. And then we go and love. And then we go. And it's that sense of intimacy, spending time with him, receiving his love, then going out and sharing it. One of the things that struck me, I don't know if you, what does loving people look like? I think for guys that's quite hard. But I think there's an easy way, particularly if you're married, look at your wife and emulate her. Yeah? If I live my, like my wife, the world would be a better place. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of guys. And I thought, well, wives, who do you emulate? Wives, emulate Cheryl. <laughs> Love like she loves. And Cheryl, if you're struggling, just emulate me. <laughs> now, what I was going to say was, look at me and do the opposite. <laughs> now, but there's a sense, we, we know what love looks like. It's those little things, isn't it, that, that, that my wife is so good at and that I'm so bad at. You know, when kids want picking up from here or they want, you know, they want to interrupt my space or my time or, you know. It's those kind of things. But it's doing that not just for your kids, people you love and you're committed to, but for other people, other people around you. Not just in the church, but people in your neighborhood, people in your street. It's carrying the love of God to those around us. It's living a life of sacrifice. Sacrifice to me, my desires, my wants. That's where the sacrifice comes in, isn't it? But living a life of love. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, obviously the first commandment is love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, but if you love your neighbor, if you love the people around you, you will abide in my love and you will be my friend. That's fantastic, isn't it? And all the things that we've talked about, you know, about miracles and seeing people healed, that's what the friends of God do. It's not like if we're a friend of God, we can't do anything else. No, the friends of God will do the works of God. Won't they? The friends of God will do the works of God because they will believe and they will put into operation the faith that they have that comes through grace. But the, the, the works they do of loving one another will perfect their faith and show that they really believe, that they really trust. Um, is that okay? Um, sorry, it's taken me a while to get there. I'm, I'm conscious of that. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's what he said. He laid down his life for his friends. That's what he wants us to do for one another. He wants us to lay our lives down. And this word friend, it comes from uh, philos, which means dear. It's a, not dear as in, a, you know, dear out in the... But 
dear as in a term of endearment. It's someone you associate with familiar, familiarity. Whatever, can't say that word. And that's a, that's the sense of that word in in the Old Testament as well, when it talks about um, Abraham being a friend. The word is Ahab, which which is about love. It's interesting. The word used for Moses as a friend is companion, but with Abraham, it's much more about love. I don't know if that's significant, but it meant something to me. That's why I've said it. So it's about love. It's about if I love the people around me, God will love me. He loves me anyway, but there's a sense that that love will be completed. So, have I said all I need to say? It's, it's about loving one another. We know that anyway. We, we, faith life is rooted and grounded in love. But we just need to remind one another. Love one another here. Love one another. It's basically whoever comes across your path. This is how I thought about it. Whoever comes across your path and whoever comes to mind, love those. Because I thought, you don't, no one else really, there's no one else really, is there, for you. It's people you meet and live around you. And also people you think about because God pops them into your head. You think, oh, I must phone so-and-so. And often it's not great big things that people need, is it? It's just a smile. It's maybe an encouragement. It's maybe a meal. It's maybe, uh, hey, I thought your singing was great. Whatever it is, it doesn't take much. We think we have to do such great big things, like this sacrifice of Matt Mariah. Got to do this great big thing for Phil. That, you know, it was going to take me three days to get there. But I don't have to do a great big I just have to be kind to him, be loving to him. You know, if he's down, encourage him. If he needs something, you know, if he comes without a shirt, say, give him my shirt. Or whatever it is. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't imagine Phil with that shirt, really, but <laughs> don't, don't, don't picture it, you know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. You know, where people don't have, that we give what we have. If we have two shirts, they have none, we give them the shirt. It's, it's that practical love. Yeah. It's spending time with God, receiving his love, so that we can share his love with others. And the world will be a better place, and we'll be called friends of God. Yeah? So, I would like us to sing a song. Yeah? You sure? Oh, yes. Um, I'd like us to respond to this in a song. It's called Draw Me Unto You. It's a song we know. And if we can do it without the refrain, please, singers. Can we do in love to the speaker? Can we have no refrain to the, to the top line? Thank you. I want to just respond. It's draw me unto you. Never let me go. And it's a song of, of just, I just want you to refresh your commitment to God, to be his friend, to spend time with him. Recently, um, I was really touched by Ellen Ed last week when she shared and she'd done the journaling. And I thought, you know what, I used to do that. I, I know how to do that. I need to start doing it again. I, it wasn't a big-headed thing, sorry. It was just to say... And, and then I was lying on my bed, letting just music wash over me, you know, soaking. I thought, yeah, this is what I need to get back to. Spending time in the presence of God. Spending time with Him. Receiving His love. Receiving His Spirit. And then, it's not right to do that, you know, 24-7. I need to take it out, which is what Mark's been talking about in terms of values and whatever. But I need to take it out into the church, into my neighborhood, into my school, wherever. Take out the love of God 
and do acts of love. It's, it's when I was thinking about it, it's not word and deed, it's deed and word. We need to do first, really, then speak. We need to show the love of God and then say why we're doing it rather than blab on about the love of God without doing it, don't we? Because that's what we're good at as Christians. We're good at blabbing without showing. We just show first. 